Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we just praise you. We thank you for this blessed assurance that we have. Your word tells us that uh, this is your testimony that you have given us eternal life, and this life is in your Son. And he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And these, and these things you've written to us so that we may know that we have eternal life. God, what a wonderful truth that is and that blessed assurance and confidence that we have, not in, and of, not in and of ourselves or anything that we have done, but in what you have done for us on the cross, the sacrifice that Jesus has made and his resurrection from the dead. Because he lives, we too shall live. What a wonderful assurance it is for all of those who have put their faith and trust in him and him alone. God, it's my prayer today that those who are here that may not know that can walk away with an assurance that comes only from knowing you and trusting in you. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. We thank you for your word, that it is truth, that it is uh, without error, that it is inspired by God. And every word that is breathed is profitable for teaching, reproof, and for correction and training in righteousness so that we will be equipped to do the work that you have called for us to do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The story is told of a uh, biker who walks into a bar in Texas, and he orders three mugs of Budweiser, and he sits in the back room, and he drinks a sip out of each one of them one at a time. And when he finishes them, he comes back to the bar, and he orders three more, and at that time, the bartender said, you know, uh, it would probably be better if you just order them one at a time, because as they sit there, they get flat, and it'll taste better. And he said, no, he goes... You know, my brothers and I, we decided this is how we'll drink in remembrance of one another. We're all over the place, and one is in Dublin, another in Tennessee, and here I am in Texas. And so we just promised each other that any time that we would drink, we would drink this way, kind of to remind ourselves of our family ties and our connections. And so the bartender said, okay, whatever. So this goes on for months. So the guy keeps coming back in. He orders the three beers. He goes back to the room. And he drinks like he does. He goes back. He orders more. And on and on it goes. He becomes a regular and people get to know him. And one day he comes in and he says, hey, um, I'd like two mugs. I said, two mugs? And uh, he goes back. He sits. He drinks. And he comes back. He said, I'd like two more. And, he's, and the, finally the bartender said, you know what? I, I'm, I just want to let you know that you know, I'm really sorry for your loss. And uh, the guy looks at him for a second, and he starts to laugh. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. He goes, we're all fine. Everybody's fine. He goes, uh, but the thing is, my wife, she made me join this Baptist church down the street, and, and I have to quit drinking because of that. <laughs> and uh, he said, but the good news is, it hasn't impacted my brothers at all. <laughs> you know, and, and I, was, I was reminded of that story... You know, while being funny, it also is a very sad commentary as to the strange disconnect that occurs in the lives of many, quote, and I put it this way, religious folks who fail to see the importance of behavior and beliefs being in harmony with one another. You know, today in our study through Luke's gospel, if you've got your Bible with, me, with you, turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 13, because in this passage, Jesus addresses such hypocrisy, you know, in his typical no-nonsense confrontational style of teaching. If you'll look at this, we're going to find in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, you know, God's answer to the problem of death. 
the problem of death, and, and, and it's a problem that we all deal with, the one-to-one, you know, as, as one man said, he said, you know, there are more people dying, you know, there are people dying that have never died before. And, uh, you know, and there's a lot of truth to that. And in Luke chapter 13, we read these words. Now, on, on the same occasion as the occasion that we just had, had um, brought to our attention last time we got together in Luke chapter 12, on this same occasion, his teaching, uh, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Well, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. He said, A certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it, and he did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, He said, Behold, for for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. He says, Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put it in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now, I read recently where a a pulpit committee has been defined as a group of people in search of a man who will be totally fearless and uncompromising as he tells them exactly what they want to hear. You know, I like that because, you know, there's a lot of truth to that because church people, like most people, naturally prefer comfort to challenge and encouragement to correction. You know, the fact is, you know, Jesus' very own preaching style would not please some congregations because, you know, he certainly uh, was not in the habit of telling people what they wanted to hear. You know, if you look back at the passage that we studied the last time we were together, you know, he said that I came to bring fire on earth, speaking of judgment at one time. You know, there's a time where it's coming that he will judge the living and the dead. And he said, I came to bring division instead of peace. And then, you know, he indicted them as hypocrites who, you know, would not apply the same interest and energy to reading the spiritual weather that they apply to understanding earth's weather. You know, he said, you know, here you are, you people study the weather, you know when it's going to be hot, you know when it's going to rain, you know when this is going to happen, that's going to happen. You have all this interest in this temporary thing called the weather, and yet you claim to be spiritual, but you don't put half the energy into understanding spiritual truth that you put into understanding, well, wonder what kind of weather we're going to have today. He said, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're more interested in all these other things than you are spiritual truth. And we all got to examine ourselves because that's an indictment that we all have to look at and say, you know what, is that true of me? Am I more interested in my business? Am I more interested in my hobbies? Am I more interested in sports? Am I more interested in the temporary things of this life than I am in, in the spiritual truth that is eternal? You know, how much interest do I really have in God and spiritual things? Do I re- am I really seeking Him? Do I really want to know Him? Do I really want to know the answer to these great questions of life? Or is it just comfortable to come and sit in church for an hour or so and go about my business the rest of the week? He says, you know what? You're hypocrites. And he indicted them for that. I like Stuart Briscoe in his book, Patterns for Power. He's imagined the kind of conversation that could take place at a family meal after hearing Jesus' sermon. And this is what he writes. He says, well, Dad, what did you think of the sermon? 
The dad says, I was insulted. Why? What did he say to insult you? You know, he said, if you were interested in weather forecasting, he said, somehow that proved that I was a hypocrite. I said, come on, dad. He didn't say that. He didn't say anything like that. What he actually said was, if you take the time to become an expert in reading the skies so you can predict the weather, but you won't take time to become an expert in spiritual matters when you profess to be spiritual, then you're being inconsistent. That's what he said. The dad says, well, I don't care. I don't think he has the right to judge anybody. And, I don't, I, and I'm not going back, and I'm not going to listen to him anymore. In fact, I'm going to see what I can do to gather a group of people together and see if we can just shut them up. He goes, you know, we don't need that kind of talk around here. How many of you have had meals like that? You know, where it's like, where would you come up with that? That's not what he said. That's not what the passage said. That's not the context. Where did you come up with that? Well, you know, most of us are like that. We don't like being told that we're guilty before God. We want to be told we're okay. We don't like to be challenged. We like to be told that, you know what, you can have your $3 worth of God and, you know, and have a little bit of comfort in that and just live any way that you want to live. And, hey, that's just great. You know what? And Jesus says, you know what, there will be no such nonsense in the kingdom of God. And he goes on to explain in this passage, you know, he wasn't in the habit of telling people what they wanted to hear because he knows that as sinners, we want to hear what we want to hear and we don't want to hear truth, but it's only God's truth that'll set us free. It's only God's truth that'll lead us to a right relationship with God. It is only God's truth and the acceptance of his truth that will cause any of us to be born again so that we can be part of the kingdom of God. It is only truth that sets us free. We're committed to the truth of God's word. And as we look at this passage, we're going to examine three such truths clearly taught by Jesus in this passage. The first thing as I was reading through it is that, you know, this passage reminded me that death is the predicted result for sin. You know, the presence of evil in the world is always troubling to people. Tragedy, heartache surround us on every side. All you need to do is to look around and read the newspaper, listen to the news, uh, hear, uh, you know, the heartbreak and the heartache and the tragedies that occur on a regular basis. Uh, If you don't think that's true, then all you need to do is become a prayer warrior here at Kindred Community Church, and you'll get the updates on a regular basis of the pain and the heartache and the suffering and the tragedy that goes on all around us on a regular basis. You know, that's just part of life. And throughout history, you know, the questions have been raised, you know, why? Why why do these things happen? You know, whose fault is it? We're always looking to blame someone. You know, who's to blame for this mess that we're all in? You know, and, 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 you know, in the ancient world, as we'll see in this passage, unlike today, I may add, you know, people were very slow to attribute evil to God, his carelessness, uh, you know, or his uh, lack of love or non-involvement as people are today. You know, somehow it's all God's fault. Well, in the ancient world, in this context that we have here, people were very slow to blame God for anything. And so as a result, they would look around and say, you know, if heartache or tragedy has occurred in your life, somehow or another, you are to blame for that. You've done something that has brought about the judgment of God into your life, and so you are deserving of whatever it is that's happening to you. You know, if tragedy comes, it's your responsibility. And that was the supposition of the day, and it led to the teaching that we find here because there are public comments that were being made about a pair of local tragedies 
And Jesus takes, you know, this popular assumption and he turns them into an opportunity to teach truth. He takes two events that they were all familiar with and he says, you know what, let me just tell you the truth. Let's not go off on these, you know, rabbit trails, these sidebar conversations that we have. And you know how it goes all over the universe with people. He said, you know what, let's just come back to center focus and find out what's going on. But before we examine these two tragedies, I want to take a a moment or two and review a doctrine that is all too often forgotten or even misunderstood in our culture. And it's a doctrine that's sometimes referred to or commonly referred to as original sin. And it helps us to understand in this passage, you know, that tragedy and calamity can happen to anyone because all are human beings negatively impacted by sin. You know, the Bible says that it was through the deception and the uh, temptation of the devil that sin entered into the world. 2 Corinthians 11.3 speaks of how the the serpent, the devil, uh, uh, deceived Eve through his subtlety. Romans 5.12 says, By one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. You know, the Bible reminds us that Adam was not deceived, that he deliberately disobeyed God's revealed instruction as to, you know, the the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil. He said, if you eat of that tree, you will die. And, and, and Adam knew what the, what the consequences would be. And yet at the same time, he deliberately rebelled against God. He knew what was the right thing to do when he just said, I'm not going to do it. I will do what I want to do. And through that disobedience of Adam, sin entered into the world. And through that sin comes death. You know, I've heard people say, well, you know, that's not fair. That's not right. I mean, you know, the fact that Adam chose to sin, you know, that's, that's his, his fault. That's his responsibility. Let, let God hold him responsible. But what does that have to do with me? And I said, but you know what? You know, stop and think about something. There are a lot of things in life that you think aren't fair or shouldn't be the way they are, but they just are. The fact that you have a certain skin color is because of the gene pool that your family swims in. You know, the fact that you have, if you go into a doctor's office and a doctor, and you know, and they'll, they'll ask you these, these list of things. You know, does high blood pressure run in your family? Does high cholesterol run in your family? Does heart disease run in your family? You know, when I went in, you know, does anybody in your family have cancer? You know, and they go through the checklist, you know, because of the propensity to end up in a similar situation. And you sit there and say, well, that's not fair. That's not right. Oh, hey, you know what? Your height, your weight, your your propensity to weight, your eye color, your skin color, you know, all of that is a result of genetics. And so the fact that we're born into this world with a congenital birth defect that God calls sin nature, you know, you may not like it, but it's the way it is. And it's truth. And the evidence is all around us. So we have to deal with that. You know, the immediate result of sin was that Adam and Eve had a sense of shame. In Genesis 3, 7, we're told, And the eyes of them both were opened, and that they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made aprons for themselves. In addition to their shame, they tried to hide from God. The Bible says, And Adam and his wife had hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And you know what? And stop and think about it. Isn't that true today? Isn't the first response of those who are guilty of some offense to hide what they did? It's just part of the sin package. Did you do that? No, you know, and they try to hide it, to try to cover their tracks. 
And if you stop and you think about it, the reason that most people get caught in what they do is because they can't think of everything they need to hide. You know, CSI, you know, DNA, all these kind of things. It's like there's always something that they miss that they can't hide because, you know, that's just the way that it is. You know, and it's important for us to to be reminded on a regular basis of these truths because it'll help us with the nonsense that we live in our world today. And the nonsense of the world today is that somehow you and I are good and we're good until we do something wrong. And it's like, no, that's not true at all. You know, David said that he was conceived in iniquity, that he was conceived in sin. And it wasn't that, you know, he came from some type of relationship that was wrong because we know his mother and his father. And it wasn't that he was saying that it was some immoral relationship. He was saying that, you know, in in, in iniquity, he was conceived. He was born into this world a sinner. And the Bible says that as a consequence of sin comes physical death. The soul that sins will die. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 speaks of our condition before we became Christians as being dead in our trespasses and sins. We are children of disobedience by nature, the children of wrath. In Romans 3, which quotes Psalm 14, it describes the condition of humanity this way. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is no one who seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. It's important that we understand that truth. Because any misunderstanding of that takes us down many rabbit trails that keeps us further and further away from the truth. The truth of the word of God is that you and I are born into this world sinners before God. And the evidence is our behavior which violates God's standard of what is right, the evidence is that one day you will die physically. The soul that sins will die. And so the question came up as we go through this, the point of all of it is, for the wages of sin is death, and the soul that sins will die. You know, and and the Bible is speaking of not only physical death as a consequence of sin, but also spiritual death and eternal death what the book of Revelation refers to as the second death. And that you may be alive physically, but apart from Jesus Christ, you are spiritually dead because of sin. And if you fail to do something about your sin and die physically, you will face eternal death, which is eternal separation from the God who made you. Jesus reminds us in this passage that death, both spiritual and physical, is the predicted result for sin, which is man's rebellion against the authority of God. And that, you know, when the subject of these two local tragedies were being debated, what the cause of these tragedies were, you know, it made for a perfect springboard for Jesus to teach truth, which in essence is life-saving truth. And so with that background, understanding that God had always told man, if you sin or rebel against me, you will die. Jesus now uses two incidents or events that took place that every person in his audience was familiar with. It was contemporary current events, current news. And he uses those to teach this next truth. 
And that is this. Personal repentance is God's answer to the problem of death. Let's look again at verses 1 through 5 and see how clear this is taught. It says, Now on the same occasion as the teaching that had taken place, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? He goes, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus uses these two well-known tragedies to make his point. The first point is that of the Galileans who were murdered by Pilate. You know, everyone knew of the event, but the reason it was mentioned to Jesus was that it was generally believed, as I mentioned, that, you know what, the victim of calamities and misfortunes were guilty of some extraordinary sins that they had kept hidden before God. In John chapter 9, you know, if you're familiar with the passage of the man who was born blind, Jesus said, you know, as they addressed the questions, they said to him, hey, who was, you know, who sinned? This man or his parents, that this man was born blind. That was the, you know, that was the, the assumption. Job's comforters, which is an ironic term, by the way, if you read the book of Job, his comforters, you know, basically said, hey, what, have you ever seen a righteous man die? You know, have you ever seen anybody who was, you know, not guilty? And, and in a general sense, with the background that I just gave you, there is truth to that. Every one of us die because we are guilty of sin, and so therefore we're worthy of death. That's a reality. But does it mean that every situation and every circumstance that happens in a person's life is a direct result of sin in their life? And the answer is very clear. I say to you, no. Do you really think that those Galileans were worse than other Galileans because they met the fate that they met at the hands of Pilate? And the incident was basically that there were men who were in in Jerusalem at the time, these Galileans, who weren't real excited about Pilate's rule, and that Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct, and the people there thought, you know what, he was stealing money from the treasury's temple, the temple's treasury, and said, you know what, we don't want them to do that, and they rebelled against them, and they protested against them. And so what Pilate did to shut him up was he had his men go in undercover into the temple and they were dressed like everybody else and they took some daggers in with them. And while the Galileans were there offering their sacrifices to God, these, these soldiers of Pilate went in and just stabbed them and killed them, slit their throats and their blood was mixed with the blood that was in the temple. And so basically what was happening was this, the reasoning, the thought process, and many of us think this way, the thought process was that happened to those people because they had protested against Pilate. It was a direct result of their, you know, their rebellion. And so, therefore, they deserved what they got. Right, Jesus? And he said, you know what? I'm not even going to go there with you people. I tell you this. First of all, your supposition is wrong. I tell you, no. How you're thinking is wrong. And unless you repent, you too will perish. There are folks today who wrongly believe the same thing. You know, and I've received calls, you know, I'm sure that you have in, in times of any type of tragedy or distress in your life or when things are going on. You know, you receive, you know, well-meaning comforters like Job who come and try to help you to understand that basically what's happening to you is a direct result of your disobedience to God. 
And they're well-meaning people, and they really want to help, but, you know, they just want to make a point that, you know what, basically you're getting what you deserve. But they write it in a much nicer way. You know, they just say things like, hey, you know what, and, and, and I've heard it. I've heard people say, either directly to my face or behind my back, you know, the reason I have cancer is because there's some unconfessed sin in my life. And if it's not unconfessed sin, it's because, you know, I was involved in starting this church and it's a result of God's retribution against me uh, for doing that. And, you know, and I, and I hear those types of things and I praise God for a passage like this because Jesus says, I tell you no. And, and, and you know, in, in, the, uh, in the new living modern version, basically, says, you know, I tell you people, you know what, you're just stupid. <laughs> hey, just quoting the living version, <clears throat> you know, but, but, but it's, like, it's like, no, you know what, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, but I will tell you what you need to do, you need to repent, and unless you repent, you too will perish. Now, I, I say this because I want to encourage us who may have a tendency to judge the calamity or the tragedies in the lives of other people, to be very cautious about the platform that we take, to make such accusations, because you know what? God only knows the heart. God's the one who knows what's going on, unless it's visible and evident to everybody. And you know what? And there are times, now don't, don't, don't misunderstand, Jesus isn't saying that, you know, that, that you know, sometimes tragedy isn't a re- direct result of sin because Matthew 9 tells us that you know, you know, what, there's times where what we sow we reap. We know that from Galatians. And so we've got to be very careful not to, to build you know, a platform one place or the other where it's like every tragedy and calamity is a direct result of sin in somebody's life. And I'll tell you right now, I know parents who beat themselves up over the choices that their children make as if somehow or another it's their fault for the, for the, the sin in the life of a child. And I'm just going to tell you right now and, and hopefully comfort you with these words that, you know what, all of us are responsible for our own decisions. And when we examine ourselves, which we must do, to find out, you know what, is, is there any way that I could have misled my child into believing this foolishness that they would go that direction? Was there a hypocrisy in my life that my words and my, my, my lips and my life weren't in harmony? But I will say for all of those who, you know what, you've trained up your children in the way that they should go. You, uh, you lived a life that was pleasing to God with your lips. You professed him with your life. You indicated in harmony that you believed the things that you told them to be true. And yet they just chose to go their own road. What I tell you and I comfort you with is this. You know what? It, 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 it's their own decision and their own responsibility. And they need to take responsibility for it. Stop beating yourself up over the choices that other people have made. Because God says, you know, like he said to Cain, hey, look, sin is is knocking at your door, but you must master it. You must choose to do what's right. You must make the right choices. You must go down the right road. You must say no to temptation. It's your decision. Now, as parents whose hearts are broken, we continue to pray for our children. We continue to encourage them. We continue to love them. But all I'm saying is stop beating yourself up over it because if you've done what is right before God, then God, you know, frees you up from self-induced guilt. And that's what was happening here. Those people deserved it, didn't they? And Jesus said, you know what? They didn't deserve it any more than any other Galilean. Because every Galilean, like every human being, is a sinner, just like everybody else. And you know what? And that just comes with the territory of being human beings. 
period. Now, the other side of it is, and, and, you know, and, and also to affirm and confirm that that is truth, if you remember what Jesus said to the man, the, the, the people would ask about the man born blind, he said, you know what, neither of them sinned as far as a direct result of blindness in his life. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this man was born blind so that the works of God could be displayed through him. He came into the world for one purpose, that when Jesus came to him and healed him and opened his eyes so he could see, the whole world would see that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That was his purpose in life. So as we go through it, we recognize and understand it. And, you know, and, and it happens regularly. You know, I think about you know, the young Christian gal at Columbine High School several years ago who, who was you know, killed in that random act of violence. I'm just trying to say that she deserved that, that she sinned or her parents sinned and somehow she deserved that. That's nonsense. Or what do you say about the two kids that died in a car crash in Laguna Hills or Laguna Beach two days ago or three days ago and I just read about their memorial service in the paper yesterday. Two kids that went and picked up a video and this is what they did every Friday night. They'd grab a video, they'd go back to one of their friend's house, parent's house, whatever, watch a movie, hang out with their parents. And here's what the quote was. And both of them lived for Jesus. They lived for Jesus. And they die in a car accident and everyone's scratching their head trying to figure it out. And Why? The wages of sin is death. Was it a direct result? And they're like, well, you know, was it drugs? Was it alcohol? And, and all, you know, there's always got to be a reason. There's always got to be someone to blame. And you know what? And sometimes it's just the way it is in life. Because we come into this world alienated from God and the wages of sin is death. And the consequence of death, the soul that sins will die. And that's just flat out the way it is. One lazy afternoon on a Sunday in Papua New Guinea, Wycliffe missionaries Walt and Vonnie Steinkraus were resting alongside their daughters Carrie and Kathy when their world came to an abrupt end. At precisely 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a half-mile-wide section of a mountain on the opposite side of the river from their village broke off and buried them. They may never even heard a sound in a world full of vacant hillsides, in a world full of reprobates or people that have no interest in God, in a world where there's too few missionaries. The Steinkrauses disappeared under a mountain. Was it because of their sin? No. Not all tragedy or crisis is due to one's own sin, but all who sin will die. See, God's answer to death is repentance. Repentance. The second story is a construction accident. And I can just imagine what their workman's comp rate went up to after this thing happened, man. I'm telling you right now, they're going to have a hard time getting a liability insurer after this. But it was a tower that collapsed and 18 people got killed because of it. And so these people had neatly packaged up in their mind and said basically this, you know, the people that Pilate killed, they deserved it. And that's why, you know, nothing bad happens to us because we're such fine religious folks. Now, Jesus blows them away because he says, hey, well, wait a minute. If, if the people that were murdered by Pilate deserved it, I'm telling you, first of all, no, they didn't. But that's just the way it is. 
Well, what's your answer to some folks who are just happened to watch a construction project or walking by minding their own business and the tower collapsed, which was probably a part of that aqueduct was being built, and the tower collapsed and it killed 18 people. What did they do wrong? And then we all try to figure it out. Well, you know, they shouldn't got too close to the construction site. I'll bet you know they had that caution tape up there. Someone went right underneath it. You know, and if they did, that's all sin nature anyway. You know how it is. It's like when something says wet paint, don't touch. What do you want to do? It is wet. It is wet. Yeah, that's the way we are. It's like when, you know, we're told no and we say, well, I want to do it. And that comes with sin nature. That's part of the package. And so, you know, they're all trying to figure out what Jesus said was no. That's not why they died. But I'll tell you this, unless you repent... You too will perish. You ever get in these conversations with people that talk about, you know what? Well, what about people somewhere else in the world they've never been, that have never heard about Jesus? Are you going to tell me when they die, they're going to be judged for sin when they've never heard about Jesus? And the answer is yes. Well, that's not fair. Well, wait, what's fair? What's right and what's truth may not be fair in your eyes, but it's the way that it is. You say, well, that's just not fair. I got cancer. What's fair? I've never felt sorry for myself and gave the old, you know, why not? Why not me? You know, I go to hospitals. I see other people. I see them. I see what they're going through. It's like, why not me? You know what? Why not? What's fair? It's like, you know what? That's just the way it is. It's the truth. So deal with it. That's it. And you always hear people worried about people they've never met in some part of the world they've never been. And what Jesus goes to them and to you and to me is this. You know what? Don't worry about them. What about you? What about you? What about you? You are hearing the gospel. You are hearing that you're a sinner. You are hearing that when you die, which you will because of sin in your life, that if you reject Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection on your behalf, you are hearing that if you reject him, you will perish. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will what? Will not perish, but have everlasting life. The inference is simple. If you don't believe in him, you will perish. If you do believe in him, you won't perish. Those are the two options and the only two that God makes available to you and me. Period. And that's why he says, unless you repent, you will die. So his answer to death is repentance. When death comes, we will all perish unless we have repented. And the context here is final judgment. All will die and only God can give eternal life. It is only through his mercy that we are saved. It is by being born again by the will of God, not by our own efforts. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. See, the word repentance, now stop and think about this. If, if the difference between going to heaven and hell hinges on repentance, then I think it'd be real important to understand repentance. Because it is probably one of the most misunderstood concepts in our culture. Too many people believe repentance is some person manipulating our emotions to feel bad about something. And that is repentance. 
Repentance is much more than feeling bad or remorse about our actions. Judas was remorseful about betraying Jesus, but the Bible says he never repented. So repentance is the key to the entrance to the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. Or worse yet, religious folks who mislead people into believing, feeling bad about something is somehow repentance. And I want to share with you an excerpt from a book that, I, that I'm reading through, a John MacArthur's book, Hard to Believe. And I want to share this with you because it, it lines up with this whole idea of repentance. And he says this, I know this shocks some people because we hear all the time that getting saved is easy. Just sign this little card, just raise your hand, walk down the aisle while the choir, the choir sings one more stanza, recite this prayer, ask Jesus into your heart. It all sounds so simple. The only problem is that none of those actions has anything to do with real salvation and getting through the narrow gate. That sort of invitationalism implies that Jesus is some poor, pitiful Savior waiting for us to make the first move to allow Him His way in our life. It implies that salvation hinges on a human decision as if the power that saves us were the power of human free will. That's why you'll notice that we are very clear about not being ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Not your efforts or my efforts or my understanding or lack of understanding. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that goes forth in power and the Holy Spirit convicts a person of sin so that that person repents or change, has a change of heart and mind and action. He goes on and says, this emphasis, this free will uh, is an American phenomenon that started in the 19th century with a New York lawyer turned evangelist named Charles Finney. He was the most formidable American anti-Calvinist and he insisted that people get saved by an act of sheer willpower. Therefore, whatever is necessary in order to manipulate their wills is an essential method because whatever it takes to convince them to decide to be saved is legitimate. The end justifies the means. And so the manipulative altar call became a major force of American evangelism. He says, up to that point in time, American evangelists were, the, for the most part, Calvinists. That is, they believe that sinners are saved by hearing the message of the gospel while God, the Holy Spirit, awakens them from sinful deadness. Finney, however, took a different path. He made emotional appeals and taught that salvation required no sovereign regeneration by God, but only the act of the human will. The people came streaming down the aisle under the force of his cleverness, and the vast majority of these weren't real conversions. In fact, Finney later admitted about his ministry, it had produced mostly half-hearted and, quote, temporary converts, but the spectacle of crowds surging forward was very convincing. Dwight L. Moody picked up on the technique from Finney, and, and on and on and on it goes even to this day. He says, according to Jesus, it's very, very difficult to be saved. At the end of Matthew 7, 14, he said of the narrow gate, there are few who find it. I don't believe anyone ever slipped and fell into the kingdom of God. That's cheap grace, easy believism, Christianity light, a shallow, emotional, revivalist approach. I believe in Jesus. Well, fine, then you're in the family of God. He says, no one but God through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel 
could cause another to be born again. Now, I've heard from many of you about altar calls. Why don't we have altar calls? And I'll tell you why I've just never been crazy about altar calls, and this is the reason. Because salvation is between a broken-hearted sinner and God. Repentance means having a change of heart, and along with it, a change of action. To repent means to have a change of mind about your own goodness. You think you're good enough to get to heaven? God says you're not good enough. None of us are righteous. No, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us sought our own. We're all in rebellion against God. Every one of us are conceived in iniquity in our mother's wombs. We're all born into the world sinners. You think you're good? You know what? You'll never be good enough. It's to have a change of heart and attitude about our own self-professed goodness. When you recognize that you are a sinner and that there is no hope for you, that is the start of repentance. To have a change of heart and mind about who Jesus is. Good man, good guy, good moral teacher, one of many ways to heaven. He says, I'm the only way. I am the only name or authority given under heaven by which men can be saved. To have a change of heart and mind about your own self-professed goodness. To have a change of heart and mind about who you believe Jesus to be. To have a change of heart and mind about what one needs to do to be forgiven. You can't work your way to heaven. It's by grace we're saved through faith. It is acting upon the word of God. God says, Chuck... You are a sinner. And the only hope for you is that you turn from sin. You turn to me. You believe what I say about the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he is God in human flesh who died on the cross and shed his blood for your sins. You believe he died for you. You believe that he rose again from the dead. And I will cause you to be born again when your heart is right before me. And once you become a child of God then you must live in a manner worthy of your calling. You need to live it out. That's why we see such shallow Christianity. That's why when you take polls and you read them and you're just blown away at 80-some percent of people in this country believe they're Christians. That's a that's violation of the Word of God that says, you know what, only, there's only a few There are many who believe that they are. There are many on the road to destruction, but only few find that narrow gate. Why? Because we've got people out there telling people, just believe in Jesus, just trust in Jesus, just walk down the aisle, just sign a piece of paper, you know, just raise your hand. And you know what? And by raising your hand, you're in. By walking down, you're in. No, by having a broken and repentant heart that turns to Christ and His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection and you are broken for your sins before God and born again by His will and His effort and not by your own, then you're a child of God. And then you will live according to who you now are. You know, the Word of God is so clear that we must live. And I praise God, you know, as I look at this passage and the clarity of it, unless you repent, you too will perish. Have you repented? Have you repented? If not, you will perish. But if you have repented, you're a child of God to those who believe in His name. 
The third and final truth that comes is a parable that Jesus uses to illustrate this truth of what I'm saying. Unless there has been brokenness that has led to confession and agreement with God of your sin, that has led for you to trust in Christ, His death on the cross and His resurrection, unless there is a change of your heart and your behavior, you are deceived and on the way to hell. And Jesus illustrates it clearly in this parable of the fig tree when He says this, there must be a perceivable response if, if, if repentance is true. He says, and he began telling this parable, a certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and he didn't find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up ground? And the vineyard keeper answered and said, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. This parable directly relates to the nation of Israel. And yet at the same time, there's a secondary relationship that you and I can relate to, and that is this. And he's saying that, you know what, the real test of one's profession of faith is the fruitfulness of their life. Is there evidence you know, a fig tree took three years to, to bear fruit. On the fourth year, everyone, all the fruit went to God. Years five, six, and seven, this man, this vineyard keeper, the owner, came and said, you know what? I've been waiting seven years for this tree to bear fruit, and it hasn't bared any. Cut it down. And he would be right for doing that. But the vineyard keeper, a picture of Jesus Christ, says, you know what? Wait one more year. And if there's not fruit then, then cut it down. Our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who goes before our Father and says, you know what, give, give it one more year. You know, I praise God for the patience of God because some of us were confronted with the gospel and we rejected that truth. And yet God in his patience says, I'm going to give you a little bit more time. Paul Bunyan, as he wrote, and he preached a sermon on this passage, said, you know what? He said, the problem with the fig tree was it was too earthbound. And the problem with men and women who are sinners before God are we're too earthbound. The worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches were too locked into this earth. And Jesus says, you know what, let me, let me come along and dig around that tree. Let me dig around it. Let me loosen it up. Let me loosen the soil. Let me break some of those roots, those deep ties to this world. Let me through calamity and through tragedy and through heartache and through heartbreaks. Let me, let me just continue to pound this person's life until they see their desperate need for my grace and mercy. Let me just dig around them. And you know what? And if after all of that, they continue to reject the message of God's love through faith in Christ, then cut it down. It deserves to be cut down. See, we need to recognize and understand that the word of God is clear. And I want to reiterate it. Because there's so much confusion in our day-to-day -day about this truth. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 through 10 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't, even, don't fool yourself, yet alone being deceived by the enemy. Neither fornicators. A fornicator is a person who has sex outside of marriage. Idolaters. Anybody that puts anything before God nor adulterers, homosexuals, or sodomites, or thieves, or coveters, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, 
will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Nor will adulterers and fornicators and unclean people and lewd, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murderers, drunkards, revilers, and the like. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, let's, let's make it clear, you know, all of us are capable of stumbling into sin. But if unrepentant sin is a pattern of your life, then you are not a child of God, no matter how many cards you sign, owls you walk, hands you raise. Period. I met with a guy not too long ago who said that his daughter is dancing in a strip club, but at least she went forward when she was young to give her life to Christ. So what evidence have you ever had that there's fruit in her life? That she was really repentant and broken of her sin? He said, well, see, oh, now, see, you're getting legalistic. I said, what? I mean, what evidence is there? We hear and see stories all the time about people who choose to live sinful lifestyles and then proclaim that they trusted in Jesus as their Savior. Well, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and you're living in an adulterous relationship, the Spirit of God, if He really lives within you, is going to be kicking you to death until you are so convicted of sin that you are broken, that you repent and you turn from it and you do what's right before God. If you are a homosexual, you can't go on living in a homosexual lifestyle saying, oh, but I walked down the aisle, I trusted in Jesus. He says that is sin before God and such who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so goes for liars and stealers and thieves and, and people who are coveting other people's goods and people who are walking around, you know, slandering other people. You know, it, there's, a, there's a long list of sins that keep people from the kingdom of God. And if that's a pattern of your life, you are still dead in your sins. And you need to repent. And if you don't, you too will perish. And that's a reality. And that's truth. And it'll set you free. If you respond accordingly. And if you don't. You may be cut down. Don't presume upon the patience of God. In closing. C.S. Lewis. Had a marvelous illustration of this truth. Of how God is not content. To have somebody walk down an aisle. Raise their hand. Sign a card. He is not content. Until that life is conformed. Into the image and likeness of Jesus. He says, when I was a child, I often had a toothache. He said, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she'd give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me go to sleep. He says, but I didn't go to my mother, at least not until the pain became very bad. And the reason I didn't go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew when I woke up in the morning, she'd take me to the dentist. He says, I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently straight. And I knew those dentists. I knew they'd start fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which hadn't even began to bother me yet. And they would not let those sleeping dogs lie. And I thought, isn't that just like God? He's just like a dentist. When you genuinely repent of sin and you give your life to him he is not content on giving you an aspirin to dull the pain he is not content until he drives every ounce of sin 
out of your lifestyle and behavior until we become like Jesus. The Bible says, let your light shine before men so that when they see your good works, they glorify your Father who is in heaven. Don't be deceived like the man in the opening story who thought, you know what? The good news is this doesn't affect my brothers. Let's pray. Father, we're, uh, we're just humbled before you. And we recognize how lost we are without you. God, we are so far removed from you. We come into this world in, at enmity with you. An enemy of God. Born into this world with a sin nature. A congenital birth defect. That is evidenced by the way that we live. The things that we do. The things that we say. And there is no hope in and of ourselves whatsoever. In fact, we don't even seek you. The Word of God tells us that none of us are seeking you, but that you are seeking us. That you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. You sent Him into the world to offer Himself as a living sacrifice that was holy and acceptable to God, who gave His life on the cross. He shed His blood. He was raised again three days later, He conquered sin and death. And for those who turn from sin after acknowledging their sinfulness and trust in Him and His death and the power of His resurrection, you tell us that we are children of God to those who believe in His name. And that we are to then live in a manner that's worthy of this calling. God, you tell us where we used to lie that now we should tell the truth. You tell us where we're used to be promiscuous, that we should be monogamous in our heterosexual marriages. You tell us where we used to run around and lie and, and, and make up stories to protect ourselves, that we shouldn't do that. You tell us where we envied others, we should no longer envy them. When we're lazy, you tell us now to work hard so that we not only have needs for our, to meet the needs of our own life, but the needs of those who are in need. You tell us that when we were slanderers, that we should no longer slander people nor gossip. Tell us those of us who are involved in drugs or alcohol that you have freed us from that addiction, that behavior, and that we can now live a sober life, clean-hearted, clean mind, a sober living. God, you tell us the evidence is overwhelming for those who have truly repented of sin. And I just pray for those who have been deceived into into the easy believism of our culture that raising a hand or walking an hour or signing a card is somehow or another the magic entrance into the kingdom of God, that they would understand unless they repent, they too shall perish. For God, you so love this world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, it's my prayer that those who trust in you begin to live a life that is worthy of that calling to the point where their life dictates what walking down an aisle would never confirm, that they are truly children of God to those who believe in your name. We thank you and we praise you for your truth that sets us free from the deception of the enemy and even of our times and our culture so that we will know for sure that we are children of God. We love you and we praise you for what you have done for us It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us can boast. Amen.